You're listening to FundFlow, a podcast for emerging managers, offering insights into the journey of new and aspiring fund managers seeking to have access in a crowded market. Tune in as McGuire Woods partner and host, John Finger, is joined by guests ranging from first-time fund managers to proven emerging managers, experienced LPs poised to back emerging managers, and other key participants in the emerging manager ecosystem. Hear their real-world perspectives and gain actionable tips to help inform your strategy and position yourself for a successful fund closing. Welcome to FundFlow, a McGuire Woods podcast for emerging managers. I'm John Finger, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Casey Peters, managing partner of PaceNote Capital, a boutique placement agent focused on the emerging manager segment of private equity. Casey, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me, John. I've been looking forward to this. It's great to hear your voice. Likewise. Well, tell me a little bit about your history working with emerging managers, other private investment funds and ultimately how that led you to launch PaceNote Capital. Definitely. PaceNote is myself, Sam Cannon and Matt Evans. I'll take it a step back. I started my career working for the Bass family. And so I was working for the Basses on their fund of hedge funds. And you know, post-GFC had seen this migration of a lot of their third-party LPs to more liquid asset classes. And I kept hearing this buzz about private equity. And so I wanted to move back to the East Coast from Fort Worth. And my game plan was to get a banking gig for two or three years and then try and get an analyst level role at a private equity GP. And I give you the context because I had no idea that placement agents existed until I met the now CEO of my now former firm, Mercury Capital, which is the old Merrill Lynch private funds group team. He was like, this is what a placement agent does. You know, come work here. It's a more nuanced back doorway for you to get into the industry and cut your teeth. And importantly, I'll I'll let you start covering LPs early. In fact, much earlier than than most sales folks. And so I did that and I jumped in and I would say that I met Sam in 2013. He was running private market sourcing at Global Endowment Management, which is an outsourced CIO down in Charlotte. And we met in 2013 and a little bit of serendipity. He had just started ramping up efforts for GEM focused on lower middle market emerging managers, be that independent sponsors or, you know, commingled fund ones. And over the course of, you know, the next couple of years, while Sam and I talked about this, I kept hearing the same feedback from what I would consider like thought leading blue chip limited partners. So university endowments, mission-driven foundations, family offices, et cetera. And the the resounding feedback when I would pose the question, like, you know, forget about what Mercury has on our platform right now. What would be value add to you from a sourcing perspective? And the answer typically was, look, we have a almost fully mature, if not totally mature private equity portfolio. And the only thing that we're looking to add on the margin here are high-performing, often young and hungrier sponsors where we can get into this a little later where we think the alignment is really strong. And so we saw an opportunity in the market because you know there's a, a few agents out there that we think really highly of who have worked on some great fun ones. But we realized that 
there wasn't an agent explicitly focused on it. And so that was the birth of Pacenote. And so I had worked with Matt. I connected with Sam over the course of 2017 and 18, and we started building the the infrastructure in 2019 around it and, and launched in the fall of 2019. So what I would say is, candidly, didn't have much experience at Mercury working with emerging managers because at the time, the handful of sub 250 million fund ones that I sourced opportunistically through my network that I brought to investment committee, they were shot down with the feedback being, look, we have 70 people globally. We can't afford to work on a $125 million Southeastern US services focused group. The the floor for potential revenue needs to be higher. And so that structural misalignment was my aha moment and just there's a need for this in the market. So but since we've launched, we've worked with five fund partners, now four independent sponsors on pretty fun deals. And so feel like we're pretty deeply entrenched in it now. But prior to launching Pacenote, there wasn't a ton of experience actually working with these groups. It was more just hearing from the market that there was a desire for it. That's great perspective. One of the things that we get asked a lot, um, and I'm curious as to the, the candid feedback that you give to your network, what do you tell an emerging manager when they say, should I hire a placement agent? <laughs> My partner Sam's party line is, if you don't need one, you definitely shouldn't hire one. <laughs> <laughs> but the, re- the reality is we, we try to approach the way we work with our partners much different than I think most other agents. Different GPs I had worked with prior to Pacenote, it felt very finite. You kick off. And then when the fund closes, that's the extent of the relationship. And maybe you work on the next vintage. There was nothing in the interim. And when we launched Pacenote, the idea was find partners that we want to back. And importantly, we won't work on any funds or direct deals with independent sponsors unless the four of us are writing personal checks into the opportunity. And it's not fee waiver deferrals. It's actually you know us writing stroking checks on day one. And so we think that that alignment is a good ballast in terms of keeping us honest and not working on too much and just only our highest conviction ideas. And so you know when we're getting into it with a sponsor that we're, you know, we think we're excited about and doing our diligence, we try to help them see that our approach is different. And obviously the the quality of our relationships with the LP universe is one important factor, but it's uh, there are definitely groups who come from really pedigreed GPs who, and this is more the exception than the rule, but they have formal attribution, track records exceptional. And you know, we've seen plenty of groups over the last four years who have gone out and raised a successful fund one without an agent. But I would think that the feedback we would give is, if you talk to most of our sophisticated LP relationships, they would say that there's real value in an agent, even if you're going to be oversubscribed. Just anecdotally, there's one fun one that we know that was oversubscribed that didn't have an agent and they ended up rubbing a few LPs the wrong way, just how they managed the the end of the process and just communication and capacity and all that. So I think there's there's real value in what placement agents bring, but can definitely understand why over time there's a little bit of a negative stigma with working with one. 
Understood. You you touched on it a little bit and and something that I think really sets you and the team apart from from other agents is maybe talk to the audience about your value proposition to emerging managers and and really beyond the differentiation of PaceNote, how do you add value to your relationships beyond just bringing LPs on? And I, I don't mean it like that's not hard work, but in addition to bringing on the limited partners. Totally. It's a great question. Despite the fact that while I was at my prior firm, we didn't really engage on many lower middle market fund ones, even though you know, I brought a bunch to investment committee. Importantly, my partner, Sam, who I've mentioned, spent a ton of time engaging and working with independent sponsors and fund ones while he was at Global Endowment Management. You know, he really started that effort for them in 2013. And you know, over the course of the last seven and a half years, he was there. And they worked with a couple dozen independent sponsors, and they really became a thought leader in working with these groups, proactively spinning teams out of GPs and anchoring their fund one. You know, they were a fund, you know, the sole LP in certain fund ones and were really active with independent sponsors on on pre-fund deals. And Sam was really the engine that drove that. So our experience collectively as a team from those different sponsors that Sam had worked with, you know, we find to be really helpful with different groups that we're speaking with. So party line is that we want to be early. Like if someone offers, oftentimes you <laughs> offers up an introduction. But they say it's you know a year or two years away. You say that's perfect, you know, because we have and Sam had built this at Gem. It's his. So you want to launch your own firm? That's what it's actually titled Playbook. And we have a list of all different third-party service providers. How we would force rank them based on our experiences. How you should think about deal attribution and your relationships with operating partners and CEOs of portfolio companies. So there's a lot of guidance that can be helpful well in advance of you know a GP actually pulling the ripcord and and leaving their their current shop to stand something up on their own. And then I would say we spend a, a unique amount of time prior to launching, quote unquote, launching into the market with our GPs. And particularly in this you know, Zoom world that we're living in now, where we don't think the days of you know, 150 in-person meetings over the course of three months is going to be the first wave of fundraising. It's a lot of first conversations over Zoom, and we can touch on this more, but it's more competitive by far than we've ever seen for LP dollars currently, and it's been that way for the last 18 months, two years. And so the way we describe it to our partners is you need to engender emotional conviction from this LP over, you know, a virtual interaction in a 60 minute w window when they have a ton of stuff going on throughout the rest of their day. And so that's not easy to do. So we do a good amount of coaching just on presentation style, um, you know, delivery of what makes the strategy uniquely compelling, et cetera. And then functionally, there's, a lot that I would say my partner, Sam, adds a ton of value in, given that he comes from the LP side. And that ranges from, <laughs> you know, we caught, say which GP, but we caught a mistake in a cash flow file that one of our GPs, fund admin, had, had built out. And we were able to catch that before we launched. 
and you know update the cash flow files, et cetera. And then on the back end, we've had Sam's expertise prove to be really valuable when you know we're sifting through different LPs that are interested in an independent sponsor deal. And as you know, probably better than anyone, the range of economics can vary pretty dramatically. And so having Sam's experience and we were able to guide our partner in this instance and say, hey, this is this is where we think you can push this LP to in terms of what you want for carry and monitoring fees, et cetera, and ended up being a great outcome. So there's we try to be we're boutique, we try to be super hands-on. I mean, we have WhatsApp chats with all of our GPs, even our GPs that aren't in market right now. And pretty much every day we're talking to each of our GPs. And definitely if we're in market with them, we're it's all day, <laughs> eight until eight, just just messages firing back and forth. So we're we try to look and feel and act like we're truly an extension of our GPs rather than them just being you know, another name on our list of 10 or 15 or 20 things that we're working on at any point in time. That's great. I mean, clearly what one of the things that really sets you apart is that high touch. I mean, you you talked about it's not a large team at Pace Note. You're very selective around your mandates. What do you look for in an emerging manager candidate to decide that it's one Pace Note wants to work with? Yeah. I mean, you and I have talked about this before. That's the million dollar question, right? Like, Time will, we've been fortunate that since we've launched, we've had a bunch of really successful outcomes. It feels like the the market receptivity to what we're doing has been really strong. We've met a ton of new LPs that are interested in the types of opportunities. So we're lucky from, from that standpoint. But time will tell, right? If in five years, the fund performance of our groups isn't there, you know, then it's tough to for us to feel good about preaching our message and our thesis to the market. So we spend a ton of time underwriting groups. And so the, we try to keep the top of the funnel really broad. And we're pretty rigorous in how we how we log all the GPs we're meeting with. Sam's an animal in deal cloud. And we're probably speaking with 10 to 15 or 20 new sponsors per week. And there's a really wide spectrum of quality of, of sponsors, as you know. And that could be experience, age, perception as to there's some groups that have just heard about this independent sponsor phenomenon and think it's easy to go under source a deal, underwrite it at the same time as raising equity. Like it's not for the faint of heart. But I, our top criteria on our on our scorecard and that we use as we're the four of us are voting at investment committee is is the GP a killer? And maybe that, that can come off crass, I guess, but we want folks that and that and killers, quote unquote, can can come in all different shapes and sizes. Effectively, we want someone who is a hundred percent invested in the success of their new firm and especially important the performance of their early deals and early funds. And they're willing to work as hard as they can to to get there. And so that's when we meet with groups, it's it's usually a gut feel thing where we'll get off a call and Sam and I will debrief and I'll just be like, yeah, that 
there's something there. And a lot of times you just know that there's not given how high our bar is. And so there's, there's a lot more nuance to it and, you know, specific criteria, but for what it's worth, our top criteria is do we get off of a call and say, we need to drop everything and try and work with this group. We want to be partners for 10, 15 years. Excellent. In thinking about the current environment, maybe talk a little bit about how do LPs currently view spinouts from established blue chip private equity funds and how are they viewing independent sponsors making the move to raising a committed first-time fund? Yeah. So I'll take the first part of that question and maybe give a little bit of just macro LP landscape color. And so we've we wrote about it in our year in review last year, but there's been a few contributing factors to you know, the proverbial denominator effect where as a result in Q1 of this year, we had a lot of LPs saying to us, hey, we've, we've spoken for everything in our 2022 budget already. We're looking out to 2023. And that's a combination of existing managers are coming back to market more quickly than than expected or than typically in the past. You know, the cycle is three to five years. Now you're seeing groups coming back and raising their subsequent vintage in 12, 18 months. Growth of fund size. It's you know, the we our party line is we want to work with groups who want to make their money in the carry as opposed to ballooning AUM and clipping 2% on it. And if you can do it, it's a really lucrative model, but we just happen to think that more judicious fund size will give us a higher likelihood of hitting our net three times bogey. But growth of fund size and then the proliferation of the venture capital universe. You know, If you're fortunate to be in some of the blue chip Sandhill GPs, they have seven or eight different offerings. And if you want to be in one, you have to be in all. And so, you know, won't name the GP, but there's LPs that have half of their annual commitment if this group comes back and all of their different vehicles are are raising the next vintage. And so what that's resulted in is a lot of capital out the door the last 24 months. And folks that frankly are a bit exhausted on the LP side with just the volume of groups coming back to market and new GPs. And so with that backdrop, it's it's gotten really competitive to raise LP capital for new vehicles. We happen to think that where we play with newer groups, fund one, and we have a, a sub-criteria in that killer category that says is the success and performance of fund one critical to the success of the GP's ultimate career? And so basically you want groups where they literally have to get it right on fund one with their performance if they don't want to go back, work back and work at another GP. And so we think that and this is you know sort of what we're hearing. We spend most of one of the benefits as a sidebar of working on one, maybe two things at a time is that we can spend most of our time away from sourcing, just having general catch-ups with our LPs and sharing notes. And that just that's just a different tenor of a relationship than needing to press 10, 15 thing GPs at any one time. And so we're hearing this from LPs, but we do think that there will be 
over the next couple of years, almost definitionally, there has to be a reset for these LPs. It's not, you know, if they have, call it 16 GPs in their private equity roster, they're used to four coming back a year, and now eight to 12 are coming back every year. It's just not sustainable. And so we've, one thing that we've tried to key in on is, you know, we ask LPs, how are you thinking about your existing GP re-up decisions and your re-up underwriting? Because the the party line used to be, we're backing fund one so that we have capacity in fund two. We can't afford to miss the boat on all the A plus fund ones because they'll be oversubscribed for fund two. And so LPs liked to show that they're loyal, that they're long-term. And so rarely would you see groups barring a GP divorce or something, you know, catastrophic, you usually see LPs defaulting to re-upping into fund two with their new relationships. But we're seeing that the the bar for re-ups is much higher. And as a result, you know, we have know some endowment LPs who it was typically like 70 to 80% re-up and now it's sub 50%. We think that looking ahead, the demand for you know, investing with newer groups where fund size is judicious and alignment's really good will be there. And we actually think that, you know, and there's a, a long list of super high quality GPs that are in the middle market or large cap or mega cap that we think highly of. And they'll, they frankly won't have any issues raising capital. TA won't have any issues raising whatever they want to raise, even coming back 18 months after the last vehicle. But we think that there's a glut in the call it 500 to million to $2 billion fund size of groups who performance hasn't been that strong. And I think that there will be a lot of attrition for LPs, at least specifically in the ENF and family office world with those groups. So I guess the punchline is more competitive than it's ever been. But I don't think that the demand for backing new groups is is something that's going to change over the next couple of years. That's great. Great perspective, Casey. Really appreciate that. One of the things you identified, actually, I think it was in your annual report, which is just a, a fabulous narrative on what's going on in the environment. But sure, thank you. So you identified and and you've touched on a couple of times the idea of incentive alignment uh, for LPs when it comes to committing to an early vintage fund. What are some of these incentives that GPs should really have front of mind when developing their strategy or their pitch in order to present it as most attractive to the LP community? Yeah, it's a long list and it's an important question. I would say number one, and a lot of subsequent points you know, are covered by this, is what's the economic alignment? How much of your personal capital are you willing to bet on yourself? Right? Because that's at the end of the day, that's a big part as to why these really sharp LPs want to back newer groups because they know it's make or break and that they're going to be. <laughs> working 24/7 to make sure that their fund one portfolio companies are exceptional outcomes whereas you know if you balloon in AUM and performance can be average or above average then there's 
human nature to take your foot off the gas a little bit. And so it's economic alignment, but it's not, there's no hard and fast rules like 2% GP commitment was, and I guess still is like the off the shelf, you know, what LPs expect to see in a deal or a fund. And, you know, we sort of, we tell sponsors that that's our, that's our floor and we'd love to see it closer to 5% if possible. And, you know, we worked with one GP in particular who knows 10% of their own fund and LPs love that. Like you're, you're saying that your personal capital, the best thing, best use of it, in your opinion, is investing with yourself. The flip side to that is a lot of newer groups haven't had meaningful carry events yet. And so the good thing is these LPs are are fully aware of that. And so like our our second GP care equity, you know, Pete was young when we launched Fund One, he's in his early 30s and walked away from a lot of carry and two deals at his prior shop where he generated an incredible amount of value. And so there wasn't a ton of liquidity to personally invest. But the question we ask is, what percentage of your liquid net worth are you willing, and this is on the fund front, to invest as your GP commitment in fund one? And you know, if someone's willing to take out you know, a second mortgage on their house to to bet on themselves, that's usually a good sign. There's some nuance to it, but I think that the alignment is is paramount. And that goes for GP partnership too. I think that while the buzz about emerging managers and fund one in the lower middle market, pretty much everyone's hip to it now. It's you know, it's not like a novel idea. But the reality is there are a lot of not great outcomes that you don't see in the rags, right? You see other successes about fundraising and great deal outcomes. But we've seen just uh you probably could do a a whole podcast series on on horror stories of you know partnerships dissolving, et cetera. And so alignment is really important among the GP team as well. We have a couple of different rules. I won't share some of them, but things that we look for and tells to us as to all right, these this is true cohesion. They're gonna they're in this forever. They really care about each other as opposed to you know, hey, this this team got cobbled together to try and go out and raise a fund. So I think the economic alignment is sort of what takes the cake at the end of the day in LP's eyes. That's great. Thank you. You touched on this earlier, and, and I think it's a very relevant conversation. How did you see the process and framework for raising a fund change during the pandemic? And how do you think what lasting changes do you see, hopefully, knock on wood, continuing to come out of the pandemic in the future yeah. for what that process is going to look like? Yeah, I mean, the obvious one is just the growth of video communication. You know, well, I'm the first to admit that pre-COVID, I would say to people, like, there's no replicating in-person time, especially when you're trying to get an LP to move and spend the time to commit to a new relationship. And now it's, we're, like I mentioned before, we are telling sponsors, you should really sharpen your Zoom etiquette and (laughs) not be looking at things on your second screen and like really engaging because what you lose is that 
skin to skin interaction that you used to get in LP's offices for the first the first meeting. But obviously the the counterbalance to that is you can be super efficient. I mean, we've had month kickoffs for our GPs where we're doing 40 to 50 intro meetings in a month. And that just wasn't possible if you were flying to different cities across the country to see people. And so I think that the biggest thing is just the use of Zoom. And it's funny where we've heard it, it may be one of our half topics for the 2022 letter, but folks have gotten <laughs> Zoomed out a little bit, the monotony of the Zoom train all day. And so we're, we've been mixing in just good old fashioned audio calls with, uh, with just LP catch-ups. It's a little different when we're first meeting a GP and people find that refreshing. And so I think that go forward, I mentioned this before, the first interactions GPLP will be over Zoom most of the time. I don't view that changing. It's just a much more efficient way for the LPs to filter their top of the funnel. And you know, the key is making sure that what I said before, you're engendering that emotional conviction where they want to spend more time. Makes sense. Um, what are some trends that you and the team have seen in fund structures mm -hmm. in the recent past? And are there different trends that you've seen with a true first-time fund versus Vintage 2, 3, and beyond? Yeah. So our first partner rally day who i have you to thank for making the introduction way back when they wanted to do something structurally innovative on their fund one they wanted to you know they agreed with us that they wanted to signal to the lp community hey we're not leaving the lower middle market we're staying at our fund size and so in lieu of a typical two percent annual management fee the way we and we help them whiteboard this Structured it is, it's an annual budget that's ratified by the LPAC, and they have full transparency into where the dollars are going. And the managing partners there have capped their salaries, and it's just a, it's a good, it's good structural alignment. And what they got in return was, you know, two supercharged carry tiers over different ratchets. And so we've seen different within ten-year fund life structures, folks think about pulling different levers and and then frankly we've had some sponsors say like hey i don't want to do anything too cute on the fund structure i want the investment merits to to stand for themselves and i want you know the, my first fund just to be plain vanilla two and 20. so we've seen a few different things in the 10-year life what i think is most interesting and we definitely have heard it a lot experienced it a lot with sponsors that we've spent time with and probably will write about it at the end of the year, but these longer dated fund, fund structures. So evergreen vehicles, you know, 20 year fund lives, um, holding companies. And it's interesting. We've had just in the past six to eight weeks, two different sponsors who fall into the very young and very hungry category who came to us and they were, you know, they're, they spent a ton of time studying the the tax efficiencies of a holding company structure versus a fund structure, and it's you know there's a few groups who have have done it really well out there. Our feedback generally, at least for now, is you know if you want to go out and raise a fund, 
it's already an unbelievably high bar to get new LPs there to then call it a 20 year fund life or have some nuance around the structure. You know, it's just another hoop that they have to jump through. And so that's on the fun front, but I guess I maybe should have said this earlier. We, we tell folks all the time, the answer isn't always go raise a fund. There's plenty of independent sponsors. I know you guys are close with them at McGuire Woods that have been serial independent sponsors and have developed a stable of really reliable equity partners that are there and they can go out and hunt for deals as if they have committed capital. So that's that's a really eloquent outcome if you can get it. And obviously, then your, your carries not crossed across deals. So there's a little bit more flexibility if you... You know, are just focused on, hey, I want to do a, a great deal every year, 18 months, two years. And then we have, we approach that a little differently. Like, all right, this is the LP universe who are looking for those types of, of partnerships. But it's, I'd say the, the main trend this year is longer dated funds. And we've seen, you know, this proliferation of GP led secondaries and continuation funds and, it's definitely something that people are talking about quite a bit. Yeah, no doubt about that. I echo those sentiments. And I think you touched on a little bit, but one of the things that I've noticed more activity within recently, it's just this kind of creativity and flexibility in the sense that mm. we've certainly seen plenty of independent sponsors become emerging managers, but we've also seen fund managers decide, you know what, we want to operate more like independent sponsors and and also the transitory nature. I mean, we've seen groups go back to a fund structure. So I just think it's in today's environment and recently, it's not a one size fits all for 20 years. Definitely. Yep. There's definitely some fluidity there that I think is great for the market. It's great for, among other things, it, it addresses the short-term challenges with re-ups potentially totally. to maybe say, okay, I'm going to go off the board for a little bit. But you touched a little bit earlier um, on some of the dynamics with fundraising currently, but maybe talk a little bit, you know, we're, we're now in an environment where you and I knew for the past however many years, interest rates were basically zero, right? And so we have rising interest rates, we have rampant inflation, we have potential if we're not already there in a recession, I guess, as it relates to the more kind of macro environment, what do you see in store for the rest of the year and 23 for emerging managers looking to raise funds? I think that all of the factors you touched on will have different types of effects on LPs and their their broader portfolios, right? Like we spend all of our time on the illiquid private equity. We'll do a little bit of venture, but these LPs usually have public markets portfolios, and you know that's another version of the denominator effect when public markets, especially tech stocks with groups that are over allocated to VC, can have meaningful effects on how LPs are approaching how much capital they're going to put out the door in, in a twelve month window. We think that overall, the current macro and markets environment is going to sort of bounce along for the next few months as people navigate rate changes and what that means for inflation and maybe too candid, but like 
to us internally, public markets just don't even feel real. Just the the amount of volatility and sentiment that drives you know these whiplashes from day to day. And so we try to, and I think a lot of LPs are great at this. They try to be more long term in what they're looking for and understanding that a commitment to a new fund is you know a long dated long dated investment. But I think that. You know, we've been telling independent sponsors, there's, it usually happens at the back end of a fundraise or a deal raise where they'll go tap on their network, right? Former bosses, colleagues, friends, and you know, scrap together 10 to 15, 20 personal investors. And that usually happens at the end. And one piece of advice we've been giving sponsors is go do that now in early inning one. And we, we know that you're already working extremely hard hunting hunting for deals or underwriting a live deal and also raising equity like it's like I said it's not for the faint of heart but we think that any you know if you can say hey I have call it 20 million circled from two of my former bosses and same with my you know co-founder and that's just a signal one question that we always ask on every single reference call is well, are you going to invest? Not would you invest, or you know how do you, how strong do you think, think they are? But will you be investing with this person or with this group? And to us, that's the ultimate sign of someone's conviction and whether you know they think something is top notch. So it's yes to to bring it full circle. We think that market uncertainty will be here for the duration of this calendar year, and you know we're wrapping up two funds at the end of June. We're in market with two different independent sponsors. So we have a, a lot going on. We'll have, you know, one of our GPs back to market in the fall. We're we're not in a rush unless we get super, super long a group. And there's a few that we're currently talking to that we're really excited about. But launching a new a new fund in the back half of this year is going to be a tall task, I think. For sure. Maybe Drilling back down on on more of the the micro level and some of those dynamics in your experience, can you share what you have seen with certain emerging managers who have really done the best job differentiating themselves in today's market? Yeah, I think that obviously the ultimate returns are super important, but that's years away from what you can do. You know, when you're first meeting groups or commencing a new relationship. And so, we, our advice to our GPs is over communicate. Like, LPs, LPs don't want to have to call you when they've heard that something bad is, is going on. That dialogue should be ongoing. Frankly, we want, we've spoken with some, some, some sponsors and we ask the type of, of LPs that they want. And the answer is, well, don't really care. I just want to raise the capital. I don't care who it comes from. That's not, um, you know, we don't love that answer, I guess is what I would say, because we want groups who are really motivated by, all right, who am I investing on behalf of? Is there a mission there? And that's inherently why endowments, foundations, family offices are great, great fits for these types of groups. And so I think that transparency and communication will connect 
LP relationships of ours to other LPs and GPs to other GPs just for best practices in terms of quarterly reporting or you know annual meeting prioritization and making it feel like it's not just a waste of time. So I think other than outperformance on the back end, communication is really important. And we, I think that the groups that have differentiated themselves in the emerging lower middle market over the past few years have a easily identifiable, distinct thing or handful of things that they do differently, right? It's, this is our approach to post-close value add, or this is our highly thesis-driven sub-segment in a market where we're hunting and we think we're early. It'll gone are the days of just sort of being able to be a generalist and go out there and raise a big fund. So I think that groups who have some sort of unique attribute or attributes about them, those are you know, what have passed muster for these LPs and become, you know, there's GPs out there that we just know are really, really strong. Our line comes to mind where they have a great LP base, or she's built something really special. They're doing really interesting deals and they can communicate exactly you know, what they're doing. Turn River and the software side is another one. Those are a handful of things that I think groups can think about specifics to, to differentiate themselves. So we always say learn from your failures, right? And I don't mean yours, Casey. Uh, I mean, emerging managers. <laughs> what are some of those failures that you've seen with emerging managers within the process? And what can other emerging managers learn from that? Yeah, it's, it's not all, uh, even at Paystone, it hasn't been all successes and definitely not personally. To your point, that's where you learn the most. I would say, and we fortunately haven't experienced this at PaceNote, but the number one risk for not just fun ones, but all quote unquote emerging managers is partnership risk. There's just, you see a lot of groups who will see it on LinkedIn and a number two at a GP we were talking to 18 months ago is taking another role right now. And that can be a function of a lot of different things. And so we're not passing judgment on it, but we spend a disproportionate amount of time understanding, you know, the Manco ownership splits, carry splits, you know, expectations or future fund size growth and carry, you know, split changes. The biggest failures we've seen have just been on the on like the team partnership staying together. Sure. So I always say you don't know what you don't know. And there's there's instances, I think, where first-time fund managers go through the process. And this is some of the things we talk about on other episodes here. But what do you think emerging managers, first-time fund managers, overlook in preparing for the process of raising a fund? I think that one element that we try to to drill home is like look you might think that in your in your prior life when you were doing fundraising meetings or whatever you were you know having good conversations or you were connecting like you should whatever you think your bar is or whatever you think a good connection is you need to really and this is not easy right like if we have 
three, four meetings a day for a couple of weeks when we first kick off. It's exhausting and just takes a lot of mental energy. But we're saying like, be really invested in the conversation and the relationship and understand what drives them, who they're investing on behalf of. And I think that that just goes a long way in terms of these LPs are really sharp and they can, they can feel when someone cares and is invested in that particular conversation or if they're just mailing in and giving the party line. And these, these groups are really shrewd. So I think that that's one thing that we've seen some groups overlook. And it's, a, it's an extension of what I had alluded to before, just this, this idea of, you know, hey, I just want to raise the capital. It's, it doesn't really matter who it's from. That's one thing. And then I'd say the second thing is being able to really effectively communicate what you're doing post-close, and this is specific to buyout, is really important because it's five, 10 years ago, just having a couple operating partners on the slide deck would do the trick. Today, people are are really hip to, okay, well, how are they compensated? How do you think about specialties within what you're doing post-close? And so being able to, and this falls into the effectively communicate your strategy, in particular, the post-close value add is something that we think LPs are particularly keen on. So in closing, Casey, uh, this is this may be difficult and perfectly fine if you want to reemphasize something you touched on earlier. But in thinking about the one piece of advice you would give an emerging manager and also the one piece of advice you would give to a limited partner looking to engage with an emerging manager, what is most critical in your mind? I'll take the first part and split it into two. If it's a, <laughs> if you're, if you're crafty, yeah, if you're, if you're thinking about in hey, a year, a couple of years, I want to launch my own firm and I have that entrepreneurial bug, our advice would be be really consistent in the types of deals you do, stay on strategy. It's great if all five of the deals that you led the operating partner and the CEO of the Portco are all saying the same thing about you and the feedback's really consistent. So consistency of strategy, how you comport yourself is the best advice we give folks who are a couple of years away from, and they're more just in the, the just ideation phase. For groups that have formally launched their own firm and you know, let's just say want to go raise a fund, I guess the number one piece of advice I would give is and this can take a lot of different shades, but effectively communicate that you want to build real relationships. You know, these end of the day, the LPs have full portfolios. They have hundreds, if not thousands of different GPs coming across their desk every year. And it's really easy to, to pass on something if it feels like you're not going to have a meaningful relationship and it's going to be two-way. So that'd be advice... I give folks on the GP side and for LPs, I think that they know it even better than us, but we're seeing, and this stems from our bogey stepping back. Everyone says that they, you know, all these, every GP targets three X plus, right? But we had one LP had said to me, Hey, in my 20 plus years doing this, less than 5% have delivered a three X net. 
and less than 1% have delivered a 3x net on subsequent vintages. And so that, that last category is what we're benchmarking ourselves against. And so we just happen to think that there's a higher likelihood of turning a 3x at an appropriate fund size. And you know, I've had this debate with LPs I'm close enough with where I can you know, challenge some of the thoughts that they have. But there's a lot of fun ones who have gone out and raised a billion dollars, a billion plus right out of the gates. And we just have a hard time believing that. It's really hard to turn a billion 3x as opposed to $150 million fund and hence the merits of the lower middle market. But I think that and we're seeing a lot of LPs doing this, there's a preference for, and I had one the other day say, we're looking for the same thing we always have, young, hungry groups, lower middle market. And now we're adding on the filter. We want groups who have a hard time fundraising for whatever reason. So we know that there's not going to you know, launch and raise a $500, $700 million fund. So that's, the, that's just a little insight into some recent LP conversations and how people are thinking about the world, but I don't, I don't think uh, they need our, our advice too much on what they're looking for on the LP side. Well, fantastic. That's, that's great. Casey, thanks so much for sharing your expertise today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of FunFlow. Thanks, John. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of FundFlow. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host John Finger at jfinger at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.